Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today, we are continuing our series of revisiting James Bond eras. We're talking about a few of the Piers Brosnan era Bond movies, and I'm happy to be joined once again by James Bond correspondent Fred Cobb. Fred, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me again. And Very we, excited to be back. And we're bringing back Elijah Howard because he was with us as we discussed uh, the Timothy Dalton and George Lazenby movies, but apparently he expressed uh, an affection for the Pierce Brosnan era right at the end of that podcast. I said, all right, we'll bring him back. Elijah, thanks for being here. Oh, I'm so excited to get to take a big rip of that nostalgia. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it's funny. Like, I think we all really enjoyed talking about those three movies last time that are from, you know, the late 60s and late 80s. And, I mean, I... Those might be like the three strongest Bond movies taken together of like just any three you could group together from, you know, the 20th century. And I mean, I I don't I hadn't seen I I think I might have seen the only Bond, the only Piers Brosnan era Bond movie I could actually remember seeing very vividly was Die Another Day. I think I'd probably seen Goldeneye when I was too young to remember it. And so I didn't have a lot of, you know, uh, reference points for it. But I think it's it's the one era that all of us were we all of us were alive for all of these movies. And I so it's something that I think we can have our own level of nostalgia for. I think to some extent we all played the GoldenEye video games when we were that age. And I, I, that was one thing that kind of jumped out to me as I was rewatching these movies the first, for, for the first time in a while. Is I remember the video games better than any of these movies. And I just you, there's a lot of that. So it's as something that we're alive for. It's like one of the only things times where you can really have a real nostalgia for actually being aware of these movies as they were, you know, of the moment, as opposed to just revisiting something from the, the Sean Connery era. So I guess I'll, what, what I'll first ask then is... As guys that have seen a lot of these movies, and I, I guess I'll go, to, I'll, I'll go to you first, Elijah. How do you look back on this era of Bond? Because I mean, how do you balance that level of oh, I, I'm fond of it because I'm nostalgic, I'm nostalgic for it, versus I think these movies have a lot of like real cinematic value. How, how do you really characterize it when you kind of look back on this particular era? It's it's evolved, you know. It's my feelings about the movies have definitely evolved. You know, when I was younger, it was. It was largely my first entree into into the world of James Bond was the, uh, you know, were the Brosnan films. And so, you know, when you're younger, uh, you don't have as much of a critical mind, perhaps. Uh, you take the films in for what they are at face value. And the Brosnan films definitely have a lot of pomp and circumstance to them. And I think that appeals uh, to you when you're younger. And so uh, when I was younger, that, you know, was kind of what I loved and, growing up that's what you remember and then you revisit the films and you discover okay maybe they're not as good you know in terms of the filmmaking or the thematic material or the narratives but at the same time and i know we're going to talk about this they have continued to evolve i mean these were movies that were made 25 30 years ago now and some of them are still strangely politically and socially relevant in some ways. Um, definitely a few more than others, but uh, it's hard. I think Brosnan is definitely the hardest era for me to pin down uh, for Bond. You know, when you talk about the actors be- behind each era, you know, to me, there is a, there is a strong and obvious current running through the Connery eras, uh, R.I.P. By the way, yeah, that, yeah, uh, his unfortunate passing happened since we last recorded. Yeah, um, you know, and there's a very constant theme and style running through the Moore era, and then you get to Brosnan, and it's it's more nebulous, and uh, that's something that I think we, you know, will definitely 
spit on because it's I, it makes it very hard to pin down to talk about what it what exactly it is that you enjoy. You really have to just go block by block. Yeah, Fred, how about you? Uh, do you do you look do you look back on this fondly, or are you like, oh wow, I'm glad we kind of got through that so we could get to the Daniel Craig era? <laughs> Not at all, actually. I think it's pretty fascinating to see how the Bond era just kept evolving at that point because they were facing a serious identity crisis, and in a way, the entire world was stuck in that weird limbo at that point. The Berlin Wall had come down, the Cold War had ended, and when GoldenEye came out in 1995, it had been six years at that point since uh, Dalton at last played the role. And the world was a fundamentally different place at that point, and they had to find a way to, now that the big bad guys, the Russians, were essentially gone, or at the very least had fundamentally changed in their role, uh, to find new ways to keep the franchise going because one of the fundamental reasons why it was uh, so popular in the first place uh, had essentially vanished. And I think there's a pretty clear trend in the Brosnan era uh, where you can probably say that GoldenEye is the best and some people think Die Another Day is the worst. I don't quite think so. I think the world is not enough. Uh, Definitely uh, takes that spot for me at the very bottom of the rankings. But you can still very clearly see uh, that there is a bit of a line where by the end of the Brosnan era, it's pretty clear that something had to be done. And that's why the franchise was fundamentally reinvented for Daniel Craig. But I think it's pretty fascinating to see how they were able to transition from the sillier Roger Moore days uh, and the gritty Timothy Dalton era to something that was more in between, where Brosnan still had a little bit more of an aggressive streak than Moore ever did. Uh, But they also toned down the violence and the brutality that defined the Dalton era to an extent. And I think um, there's a lot to be found in the Brosnan era that really showcases why the franchise is still around to this day. Because if they hadn't been able to really flip that switch, there would have just come a time where people just wouldn't have identified with this character and the world he was operating in anymore. We're going to be doing a Daniel Craig episode at some point. It might be a little while before we get to that now, just because we're going to have like somewhat of an award season to discuss. We have plenty of time to round this out before we get to No Time to Die. But I do feel like in the way those movies are definitely darker than a lot of these Pierce Brosnan Bond movies. And so it's like, I, I kind of get what you're saying where, yeah, the tone kind of shifted back away from the Timothy Dalton stuff. But as I watched this, I was just like, it was kind of interesting because it felt like the whole time it was like these movies are just like, they were trying to figure out what what they wanted the franchise to be like the entire time and it was funny before uh we were we were talking about this i think uh elijah was mentioning how the, the one that i really don't want to talk about was like uh, as fred as fred mentioned the, the world is not enough just really bad but elijah used the descriptor oh yeah it's like trying to be like extremely modern and really to its own detriment in a way and what was one of my thoughts while watching GoldenEye which I think is clearly the best of the four Brosnan movies is like wow like we're right back doing the Soviet thing in 1995 Uh, you know like we're past the fall of the Soviet Union but like we're still like going back to that well and it was kind of weird it's like I guess yeah maybe there wasn't like any real obvious uh foreign terrain to play on that would have felt super of the moment at that point but at the same time, it's like we're kicking off a new era of Bond by kind of that with the longest hiatus, I think, the franchise had had to that point when GoldenEye came out. Uh, just between movies, they, 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 what, it had been 
I think six years since the last Dalton movie at that point. And so they take this long break and then they come back and it's like, all right, we're going to dive right back into like our notorious 80s villains and just like hang out in that world. And I was, and which, which at first I, that kind of like, I kind of, I kind of arched my eyebrow when that happened. But like, I just think the movie was like so much better made that it was kind of funny. It's like the one that was like kind of living in the past, which kind of what it almost seemed like a weird risk in a way when you're trying to like kind of start off with something new and fresh ended up just like, being the best movie. And I'm not, I'm not really sure why that is. I, th- I mean, it probably just has more to do with like, I don't know, better storytelling and uh, better writing in just in general. And uh, who knows, I guess part of what I think people, I suspect don't really like about die another day is maybe it got fairly CGI heavy compared to what came before it. And I don't know if there's a ton of that really in golden eye comparatively, even if there are some like, you know, a lot of effects, but like, I don't know. I just, uh, it was kind of funny. It's like, it feels like they're trying to find themselves throughout all these movies. Yet. I think like the, I think it's kind of funny that the first one is the best when it seems to like have probably been treading less new ground with respect to its villains than the other ones. If that, if, I don't know if that, I don't know if that sounds, if that makes sense, but that was just like, that was my biggest takeaway. Like it seems like we're on agreement there that golden is the best. And I guess we wanted to start there anyway. So golden as we already said before, and it features Pierce Brosnan's bond, you know, at, like I said, at a Soviet's weapons, chemical facility on a, on a mission with 006, who is, uh, Alec Trevelyan played by, did I say, say that right? Trevelyan? I don't know. Trevelyan. Trevelyan. Trevelyan, played by Sean Bean. And uh, they're trying to infiltrate a, a weapons facility. And at a certain point, Trevelyan gets caught and is killed by a, a, a Colonel uh, Umarov. Or, oh, Umarov. Umarov. Oh, man, I'm, I'm butchering these names. Um, and he's he's killed, and um, Bond escapes through, through some uh, pretty uh, pretty ridiculous means. It was like, wow, like this is... Uh, felt like some of the newer Mission Impossible stuff well before Mission Impossible, the first Mission Impossible ever came out with some of this uh, uh, bungee jumping, halo jumping they do in this movie. Nine years later, he ends up coming into co- contact with the Janus crime syndicate. Uh, he's having to prevent uh, Xenia on a top, another, uh, just a, I guess a great Bond, uh, Bond girl name, from having to steal a helicopter that is for some reason very important. I don't know if they do such a great job of explaining that, but uh, then he's off trying to kind of infiltrate them and he comes to learn that that uh, Alec Trevelyan, maybe not as dead as he thought, and he is having to deal with a, a new M, which is a cool dynamic, I think, in this movie, played by Judy Dench, uh, kind of setting him back to try and uh, figure out what the deal is with these Soviet satellites that are all being kind of screwed with. That kind of is the, the gist of this movie, and uh, I guess... Fred, what, what do you think makes GoldenEye just kind of work so well compared to a lot of the other movies of this era? I think GoldenEye is very successful about creating an overarching theme, mm-hmm. Uh in terms of moving on from the past. Bond, you can tell, is kind of aimless at this point. Uh, first of all, his boss is a woman now, and he clearly has no idea how to cope with that. Um, hmm. He's kind of... Str- because that he, he grew up in a man's world, essentially, and that's what basically the past eras of James Bond were all about. And now, all of a sudden, you're in the 90s, and it's not just M, really, who really sets the tone for a stronger female dynamic uh, in the Brosnan era. You also have... Uh, Xenia, a woman who weaponizes her sexuality in extreme ways that makes Bond, <laughs> to say uncomfortable, would be a massive understatement. And then you also have the other Bond girl, Natalia Simonova. And what I find very interesting about her is, and I didn't really pick up on this when I previously watched GoldenEye, she is already strongly established as a character by the time she and Bond meet for the first time, which is very unusual. Uh, right. By that 
by that point, she had already gone through a quite a bit of trauma, and she's been established as a survivor. She's the only one who makes it out of that radio tower in uh, Sevenaya alive. And she does a little bit of detective work, which uh, gets her caught up uh, with the bad guys. But clearly, she's quite capable on her own. And when she first meets Bond, she almost views him as a bit of a nuisance uh, that she has to deal with now. And I think that is really a major transition from the past, where all of a sudden, these female characters, which We've touched on this over and over again in the Connery era, in the Moore era. Uh, they were just kind of disposable uh, means for Bond to entertain himself with. And yeah. I think it's really a fundamental difference. And that is a theme that would very much carry over in the entire Brosnan era with characters like Electra King and uh, Holly Berry's character and die another day yeah yeah i was just thinking about as you were saying that i'm glad you kind of harkened back to those other movies and made that point uh about uh, about gosh now i'm gonna butcher the name again i'm gonna have to like cut my i have to like cut myself uh out of, out of this whole thing but natalia sorry mm-hmm. uh I, I literally thought back to live and let die and how like we, we we just like went on and on on that podcast but it's just like how awful the treatment of the women was in that movie and how it should have been like a big deal when they had an, a, a bond woman of color for the first time and instead it's like she's just given like a horrible like two scenes and that's it the the rosy character in that movie and then it's just it's just done. And here it's like, wow, like they gave, they gave Natalia more to do up until she met Bond than like both Bond girls basically having the entire, that mo- entirety of that movie, which I think is something that's like actually really impressive. And I didn't even think about it in those terms though. I, though I, I did enjoy the, uh, it just felt like such a different energy that Xenia brought on a top brings to the movie as ridiculous as that name is. It just feels like something different where it's like, yeah, there are other Bond movies where maybe he eventually ends up seducing the villain, but one we're here, it's like, she's like, she she is the aggressor and her actions in almost no way are like being are being determined by what bond is doing like she has her own agenda the entire time and i feel like that just gives that corner of the movie like a whole, totally different feel uh elijah what really uh what what really like resonates with you about this movie and uh makes it kind of special to you um uh, whether it be just uh, some of what Fred already mentioned or uh, some of that other nostalgia, because as I indicated at the beginning, and that was your first comment about revisiting this era, like I really did feel that watching this movie. I probably haven't played the video games in 20 years, but uh, just seeing some of the imagery as we like drop back into this movie, it's like, oh, wow, like this is really cool how this feels like super familiar. And at the same time, I'm really getting to appreciate a pretty unique story as well. Yeah. Um, you know, like, like Fred said, basically, this is a movie that is clearly aware of what it what it is and what it's supposed to be. It's a movie that is, on a whole, is very aware that it is entering a new era, and a lot of the movie is making comments about the way that Bond used to be, um, and I think that's what kind of lends itself to being such a unique and interesting Bond movie, um, because part of it is that really quintessential Bond imagery. Tacky-laden Soviets with ak 47 <laughs> getting mowed down, and, uh, you know, the the entire tank chase scene that occurs, uh, you know, at about, about the, you know, two-thirds way through the movie. Just everything about that sequence just screams, like, you know, late 80s Bond. Um, and and it's, it lends itself well to being remembered, because it is so timeless in that regard. So, you know, the nostalgic factor of it is looking back and remembering that for, you know, for the imagery and for what it was. And at the same time, you know, characters like Xenia, who are so on the surface, so over the top, which is so 
traditional for Bond, right? To have these villains that have these, like, whatever their one trait is, whether it's odd job throwing his bowler hat or, <laughs> you know, Jaws eating through metal wires with his, <laughs> you know, crazy mouth. Like, it, it, having these side villains that are super memorable for their one weird trait, um, that, that permeates through Xenia's character, too. But as you've mentioned, and as Fred mentioned, all of these things are in some ways self-referential because they are put into this movie with the recognition that it's like, these are kind of relics. Um, and they are very cleverly toyed with and you know, flipped on their head in a couple of different ways. I mean, this is a movie that is uh, by and large about, uh, about cyber terrorism, about, about computer warfare, which is basically a new concept for the series at the time. I mean, the, the only film that even kind of comes close is a view to a kill. And don't people hate that, that one? one? Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people hate a view to a kill. I, I kind of like, I haven't seen kill, it, but just it's very eighties. Okay. It's very, very eighties. And unfo- what it, you know, it's about a Silicon Valley mogul who, you know, goes crazy, but in the end, his plot really has nothing to do with computers. It's more about, Nazis and genetic experiments and weird things like that. GoldenEye really was the first film to kind of very specifically deal with cyberterrorism. It was the first film to have a more realistic uh, approach to, you know, space warfare. You know, I'm looking at you, Moonraker. Um, (laughs) And so, uh, you know, there's all these little things, all these little elements of the movie, even if something as simple as, you know, having Bond go to Cuba and having the kind of, weird unspoken like oh there's soviets in cuba kind of thing like that that had been a political reality for decades but this is kind of the first bond movie that really recognizes that like like Um, like escaped soviets that like found refuge there you mean well just that there that there was even a soviet cuban connection oh okay gotcha gotcha back to right okay to the height of the cold war and this is kind of the first bond movie that really recognizes that and so i think there's a lot there's a lot of um, there's a lot of the movie that is just very uh, ahead of its time, very um, very timely. And of course, it, when I say ahead of its time, that's not even really taking into account just this notion. It's like this is a movie about Russian hackers. It's like God, how relevant is oh, that? Oh God, I really hadn't even <laughs> thought about that. Like, <laughs> but it really is. It's and it's not just about Russian hackers. It's about like secret Russian hackers. Like it, Alec Trevelyan is is like one of us, right? And then. And then it's a surprise. No, he's actually a secret Russian and he's trying to hack us. And, um, you know, there's a whole, uh, you know, glazing over a lot of the thematic thematic material that is present in the movie. But it's kind of hard not to watch this movie in 2020 and be like, you know, not recognize like that's that is definitely a present factor of the movie that is that has ironically not changed yeah his trevelyan's aims are like he wants to steal like he wants to wipe out a bunch of like british banks or something and uh get himself a lot of money but you know also just you know i think i think it's i mean it's largely financially but he wants a lot of revenge on europe just you know for all the, the the way they did the cossacks and I, I mean, I, I did, I, I, I did dislike that that idea, of that guy as a, a villain. I, I feel like it's just more distinct than a lot of other ones that I've, you know, seen before. And I think there's a lot of value in getting like someone the caliber of Sean Bean to play your villain. I feel like that a lot of those, a lot of these movies just stand apart when they like take the time to actually like get someone that's like appropriately talented to like 
play the big bad. I, th- I think there's oh. a, I think there's something in that to that. Oh. Totally. And I mean, and yeah, I mean, the movie definitely sails fairly close to the wind with like insinuating that all Cossacks are, you know, inherently violent and, you know, are going to turn out to be terrorists. But in the movie itself, again, you know, has a recognition of this kind of modern political realism to it. When when Bond goes and meets Robbie Coltrane playing Valentin Sukovsky, who's probably one of my favorite elements of the entire Brosnan era. Um, you know, he goes to, uh, when he goes to meet Sukovsky in this movie and they discuss Janice, you know, Alec Trevelyan's alternate identity, you know, when they go to discuss Janice's uh, heritage as a, as a Cossack, you know, Bond gives this very blase, very British, you know, assessment of it. It's like, oh yeah, I mean, the Cossacks were Nazi collaborators during World War II. But not our best but, moment as England. Right. And that, well, and, and Zukovsky has to kind of correct him. Zukovsky has to say, well, yes, they were Nazi collaborators. And then also at the end of the war, when they, you know, when they gave up, when they, when they surrendered, the British sent them back to Russia to be executed. Um, so it, it's, again, it's a, it's, that's not a line that you would hear in an older Bond film. I don't think that's a line that you would hear in a Connery or Moore era film. Uh, is this assessment of the British government as being like you know massively at fault for something? Yeah, I, feel, I, mean, I, I don't know, Fred. When we talked about like, do, 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 Fred, when you watch these Bronson movies, do you feel a difference in how they're trying to like engage with like history, geopolitics, whatnot? Because I mean, I think we did talk about some, we did kind of touch on some of that stuff and what it was maybe trying to say about the moment with like in From Russia with Love, if I remember correctly. Like we did have our own little discussion about that, but does it feel like? these movies are kind of trying to address the current, the current moment or just uh, certain political issues in a, in a different manner to you. Does that something that jumps out to you as you revisit them? Oh, absolutely. Mainly because I think in the Connery era and to, to a lesser extent in the Moore era, but still uh, it was definitely clear that they knew what chapter in history they were currently in. People knew that the Cold War was an ever present threat to countries all over the world. And they knew that the Cold War was going to go on for a long time. And then when it came to an end in 1990, it was a bit of a surprise to everyone. There were people who fully expected uh, the United States and the Soviet Union to keep competing for power uh, for more generations. And all of a sudden, that was over. So when this came out in 1995, nobody really knew yet uh, who the next big bad guy was going to be. This was around the time a very famous uh, essay came out by Francis Fukuyama called The End of History. And... It essentially made the case, which has been disproven now, but at the time uh, it made a lot of sense. Uh, He essentially argued that the major conflicts that had defined the 20th century were essentially over because now the United States had won (laughs) and their political ideology was meant to stay. And when GoldenEye was released in 1995, it wasn't really clear yet uh, what direction we were headed in. So that's, I think, one of the major reasons why they went back to the Russians, because there was still some cleaning up to do, uh, where you had characters like Uromov, for example, who was still stuck in that old Cold War mindset that the West, they were they are the villains. We need to eradicate them. There is no peaceful coexistence possible. So he's the kind of guy who is very much still a relic from those old days. And Bond is also, in a way, that counterpart on the British side, somebody who lived through the entire Cold War and you always saw the Russians as the bad guys. So you have this really interesting conflict being set up here where Bond essentially has to accept that uh, times have changed 
and that he might have to actually start collaborating with some Russians to get the results he wants, like Zhukovsky is the best example. Clearly, they have some history. It's even established that Bond is responsible for his limp, but he still has to seek him out and ask him for information because uh, things have just changed so drastically that he probably won't be able to accomplish his mission without asking for that sort of help. So I think it's kind of interesting that in a lot of ways, GoldenEye was pushing the envelope in a new direction, but you still have all of these throwbacks to the past era where you can kind of tell that GoldenEye is trying to wrap up uh, that chapter of the franchise. Yeah, it's, I certainly feel like, and I put a personality behind the face a little more on like some of these other characters. And I mean, I guess Zukovsky being like kind of the big one, but it, I don't know, if, if, uh, even with just like, I, I think Trevelyan obviously gets more of a backstory here. And I mean, even they, they even put in a lot of work on the front end with respect to like the, the defense minister who ends up, you know, like getting getting backstabbed later on by Aromov. Uh, and I feel like it, it it does go to great lengths to really like give you some context for just everything that's gone on on the Russian side. Whereas I, maybe in some of those older movies we're talking about there, there, while you do have, well, now that I think about it, maybe some of those movies, you do have some scenes where you're, you're watching the villains talk. There's definitely not quite as much legwork put in behind it in some of those movies as it does feel like it is here. And maybe even in some of the other Brosnan movies. And that's why this one feels so much more satisfying is that you really kind of, I don't know, you feel like, you know, all of these other characters that are bonds fighting against pretty well by the end, which I think is, which I think is fairly impressive, like, just because you have, I mean, it's not even just like there's just one bad person. Like, we talked about On a Top and, uh, and Trevelyan and Ormov, and it, there's just, like, so many other players, I feel like, that, that are, just feel like they're so much more well built up than just about any of the other ones that came after. Like, I honestly can't tell you, like, the first thing about the about 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 the villains in the world is not enough like I, i've already forgot about it like i it's, it's it already went in one ear and out the other like that that quickly i i just i mean i obviously the, the there's the twist with the sophie marceau character but like i mean everything else is just like I, around her like i don't know and like that's fine they got like one good character one character in that movie but like really not a, not a whole lot else to stand around her and um yeah i guess there's a I don't know. I, I guess I, I guess now that I think about it, that is like the probably almost as well as anything else. And I do want to talk about some of the action in GoldenEye, but it's like I guess the character work really is pretty strong when you think about it. Yeah, and I would say also to Fred's point, you know, Fred mentioned uh, you know Fukuyama is the end of history and just kind of this changing perception of uh, in political realities in the world. Let's talk about you know Joe Don Baker's character uh, in this movie, Jack Wade. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and jo- so Joe Don Baker, this is his second time being in, in James Bond uh, or his, his second appearance. Of course, the first time he's playing a villain, an unrelated character. Um, but he comes back in this movie as a CIA operative who's kind of embedded in, in Russia and is, is James Bond's liaison when he arrives there uh, for the first time uh, in the movie. And he's such a departure from for people who have watched the series he's such a departure from the depiction of america previously right i mean in in previous film uh and pre- previous previous examples in the bond franchise right we have oh, i forgot that he was the guy in the living daylights i didn't even make that connection yeah he's, he's in the living daylights yeah i think he blows himself up with a grenade or something i don't know it's been a, long, <laughs> it's been a little while since i watched that one. but um but uh you know in 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 previous movies, I think Felix Leiter, by and large, was yeah. the the representation of America. 
and it was always kind of presented as sort of like this, you know, like like suave younger brother kind of thing. Like Felix Leiter was was never Bond, but he was never Jack Wade. He was never a bumbling, loud American. You know, he was Felix Leiter was always kind of like Bond in some regards, maybe a little bit softer, a little bit nicer. Uh, and that's something that they've gone back to with with recent movies, with the with Jeffrey Wright's presentation of Felix Leiter. But but Jack Wade for these movies, for the the Brosnan era films, presents an America that is a hundred percent real polity. I mean, he, he has no compunctions about doing anything that would seem that would you know get close to violating international law, like you know just landing a plane for them in Cuba and bringing in a bunch. Of, <laughs> bunch of marines but I thought, he's also hilarious in that way he, he just is. jokes about like cia involvement in cuba and everything that and how loaded of an even act what he is doing is and how much meaning there is behind it he's like yeah no no one knows i'm here exactly, <laughs> kind of, exactly. and that's like to me that is one of these like again just another interesting moment of character development that's a total departure from the bond that we've seen in the past um and it's uh i think it lends itself to this idea that the world is changing around uh, around James Bond, and th- this movie is him kind of having to catch up to these new realities. You know, he meets Jack Wade in Russia for the first time, and he, he walks up next to him and has that spy versus spy moment where he's like, "In London, August is a spring month or something," <laughs> and and Jack Wade is like, "Is like, oh, shut the fuck, like, shut the hell up." <laughs> like, nobody cares about the code words and the you know and the passphrases and the. It's just a it's a new world, and Bond does not quite know where to fit in yet. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think I think that's a great assessment of this movie. I, I also wanted to just briefly mention because we're talking about this idea of, you know, kind of revisiting certain aspects of Bond and things that are changing and how the franchise was changing. Uh, the director Martin Campbell, I think, is a very interesting example within this franchise because previously James Bond movies had had frequently been directed by you know different people. Uh, or rather had been directed by the same people uh, over over different films, over different spans of time, uh, different spans of time. John Glenn, I think, directed basically the entire back half of the Roger Moore era and the Timothy Dalton era. Guy Hamilton and Terrence Young pretty much dominated the first you know, couple decades. And Lewis Gilbert directed You Only Live Twice and then came back about 10 years later to do uh, Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. Martin Campbell similarly... Uh, you know, he does this movie and then he disappears from Bond for 10 years before coming back to do Casino Royale, which is another movie that is, you know, recognized as being kind of transformative for Bond. Mm-hmm. So uh, in some ways, I think like this is kind of like Martin Campbell's specialty, right? <laughs> like making, taking Bond and bringing him into a new era, kind of, you know, giving birth to a, a new modern perception of James Bond. Yeah, I, I I I did not realize he until you were until I looked, clicked on his uh, profile when you were talking. I didn't realize he also did Casino Royale, which I think is really cool. And that he it wasn't like he was married to an aesthetic or anything. And he kind of changed with the times as the character did, which I think is which I think is really cool. Right, and he's he, and he's great too. I but I would highly recommend for you know listeners who liked uh, Goldeneye and who all and who like uh, who like Casino Royale. Um, Martin Campbell directed, and, and largely this is, I would imagine, kind of what got him 
the Bond job was uh, he directed a British miniseries called The Edge of Darkness, um, which is a, a spy thriller um, that is another just very different and transformative, you know, previous spy thrillers in Britain at the time when, when Edge of Darkness was released were very much Avengers kind of things, you know, silly, over the top, spy versus spy. Edge of Darkness is about a father who is trying to track down his daughter's killers. Hmm. Um, and it's a very gritty and realistic and modern spy thriller. And I think it still holds up today. It was, it was remade in America with Mel Gibson, I think. It was trash. But the original one is Martin Campbell. And uh, I, would, I would plug that because I think it's a great, you know, kind of uh, to, to pair it with uh, GoldenEye and to see... You know, just just how much Martin Campbell's kind of evolved and taken these ideas that have sort of run through all of his all of his work. Hmm. Um, good rec. Uh, no, good recommendation. I'm 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 glad I don't. You know, I I think it's I don't know. I, I guess I just haven't been as acutely aware of like the Bond these Bond directors up until the the Craig era. I haven't been really been as aware of their other work. I kind of thought of them as. I don't know, more interchangeable and hadn't really given them a lot of thought. So it's kind of cool to hear when a lot of these guys are, have done other stuff that's, you know, worth checking out and they're just not stuck in the bond machine. Fred, uh, I want to ask you about the action in Goldeneye because I, you know, as I'm thinking about it and we'll get to die another day and talk about it in more detail in a little bit. But I, I feel like one, as I was checking that out, it seemed like a lot of the issues people had with it actually were more related to the action and just how i don't know that maybe they thought it leaned too heavy into cgi and i actually think there's like a, a lot of really cool action sequences in goldeneye that don't feel like really super aided or, or, or overly aided by any kind of special or com- effects or computer generated effects in any way how do you really feel like this this movie like just stacks up with with its action is something that's now 25 years old today do you feel like it holds up i would say so and I think that's true for a lot of action in past action movies that didn't over-rely on CGI. CGI mm-hmm. tends to look dated pretty quickly as the technology gets better and better. But more old-fashioned stunt work is always going to look pretty cool because there's only so many uh, so many like advancements you can have there. But I think the other thing that's pretty cool about the action here is, and this became a bit of a problem in later Brosnan movies, Q's gadgets... He spends a not insignificant amount of time talking about this uh, brand new BMW, which is interesting because the Bond movies were always kind of sponsored by Aston Martin. And this was the first time he actually had a very different kind of car Hmm. available. And after walking Bond through all of the gadgets in there, he never really ends up using it. Instead, the major vehicle chase here involves the tank (laughs) that Elijah already mentioned. So I really appreciated how the movie kind of... They more than they more than make up for that in Tomorrow Never Dies, though. <laughs> <laughs> Very true, and I do want to talk about that later. But what I thought was really cool about that is, again, speaking of like moving on from the past, in older Bond movies, you would always have those scenes with Q where he would talk about the vehicle, and then at some point, Bond would drive that vehicle in an action scene and make use of all of those gadgets. Uh, we previously talked about Goldfinger, which is a great example where they drive around that factory complex. And Bond basically uses every single thing, including the uh, ejector seat and uh, the oil that he puts on the street uh, to make the other car fly off the road. But here instead, even though you expect that vehicle chase to come at some point, it doesn't. And it kind of takes those expectations that you have and it subverts them. And I thought that was pretty cool. And then you also have that pen, of course, that he gets. And while it's kind of convenient that there is 
villain in here who loves to play with pens. <laughs> that is the one uh, big payoff that happens with that. I think it's kind of nice that the over-reliance on those gadgets that you get in the later Brosnan movies isn't as present here. And even though you kind of expect him to at some point make use of them, Bond still gets out of a lot of these situations because uh, he uses his wits, um, he talks himself out of a lot of stuff. And yeah, I really do think that when it comes to the Brosnan era as a whole and looking at all four movies... In a lot of ways, the action here stands out because, again, it just doesn't look as dated as in some of the later ones, like um, The World Is Not Enough and especially Another Day. I like, the, I like your point about the, 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 the gadgets in general because the, I, I, I thought the pen was like really like – if, if there's one thing that people remember, will remember from this, it's probably the pen as far as just any one gadget. And it's like a very tense scene when it actually kind of comes back into play. You remember the three clicks thing from when he's first talking to Q about it and just you can follow the, the – the clicking that that Boris is doing when he's holding the pen, it's like, oh, what, what you, uh, what you, and it, like, I, I was legit, I was legitimately kind of on the edge of my seat, like being like, oh, when, when he's gonna, he's gonna blow himself up, and and then and then it kind of subverts that expectation too by not having it actually blow up while he's holding it. But like, I thought that was like really suspenseful, and uh, it's fine. Like you're not gonna like dwell on every single gadget too much if you just dwell on one a lot. Then sure, fine. That's a that's an that's an interesting enough way to do it. I'll, I'll say uh, maybe I'm making too much of the fact that like it's it didn't feel too CGI ish, and I mean other 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 films have like done fine with like you know that more modern that I'm sure as CGI has gotten better have done like plane jumping and stuff like that. I, I want to give a shout out to that first scene though, because like there was a point at which like. I I was like, well, this is absolutely goddamn ridiculous. Like, I can't even be, I can't even like get there with this. When it, he's like uh, jumping off the side of a mountain and like crawling into a plane and then recon- and taking control of the plane. Like, my initial instinct is like, okay, this is just freaking insane. And then at a certain point, I just like gave myself over to it. I was like, okay, like this is actually kind of fun. And I feel like it was, I don't know, for some reason, like it got me. It somehow got me to a point where I was like rolling my eyes to all of a sudden was like, nope, I'll suspend my disbelief. This is freaking awesome. And I think it's like, I, I, I don't know why that is. And there are other moments in other Bond movies where I'm just like, okay, this is almost too ridiculous. And for some reason that one wasn't. So it's like kind of funny that like the, the, the first of these movies had like a stunt like that, that uh, for some reason I was like more taken by than anything else in the movies that came after it. And I thought that was like kind of cool that like literally the first 10 minutes of this era has maybe like my favorite stunt. And I don't exactly know what that says about the Pierce Brosnan era or whatever, but I was like, wow, like I'm really impressed that you guys were able to do something like this in, in 1995. Cause I don't, I mean, there's, I've obviously seen a decent chunk of action movies at this point from before 1995, but I don't, I don't think I'd really seen anything exactly like that though. And I thought that was pretty cool that they were able to make that look as convincing as it was given how unconvincing of an act it actually is. So I'm going to pick up on that because Jeffrey Kane, uh, one of the scriptwriters for GoldenEye, has actually talked about this before. Hmm. Um, his theory was essentially, you know, when you're kind of uh, writing and, and you know, planning out the set pieces to limit uh, convenient factors, essentially take out moments where it's like things just magically going right for Bond. Hmm. Um, and it, it, it shows, you know, a lot of these set pieces Things, first of all, don't go right for Bond. <laughs> things don't work out as immediately as planned. Um, and second of all, they're very elemental. There's not all, it's not a Rube Goldberg machine of, you know, this guy shoots this thing, which blows up, which blows up another thing. It's a train which, running into a tank. Right. It's extremely <laughs> simple. It's a train running into a tank. It's 
Bond ripping the guy out of the plane physically and then, you know, having to jump in and, and re- take control of the plane. It's not all these absurd factors. It's it's very simple one, two, three, you know, very simple one, two punch kind of uh, of how these set pieces play out. And I think that's what makes a lot of the movie very memorable. And that's what makes it not have to rely on CG. I mean, when I just watched this movie the other day, I watched it with, uh, with my girlfriend, Haley, and we had previously been watching uh, – GoldenEye was actually the last one that we watched. Mm-hmm. And we love to sit through, you know, sit through the credits of the movies and look at people's weird names and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> and we sat there, and the credits were over in like two minutes. It's, like a, it, it's very, very quick credits because there's essentially no special effects. Basically, it gets through really? the, the cast, it gets through the production staff, it gets through the sound mixers, and it gets through the on-set people or, uh, you know, the on-location people. And then there's, like, one block of, like, matte painters, and that's it. <laughs> like, then the, the credits are over because there's essentially no – there was no, you know, rotoscoping artists. There was, no, there was nothing uh, done to make the visual effects complicated. Almost everything that you see is practical. It's happening right there. Hmm. Interesting. That's I, I, I don't know. That's pretty cool. I mean, I I I think that's almost a good point to uh, to transition to the later movies. But I but I, I, I want I want to kind of finish out talking about Goldeneye. And do you have any other like final thoughts, takeaways, points that we didn't get to, Fred? That you want to mention about Goldeneye before we move on? Love the song. Oh, Tina yeah. Turner's theme song oh, wow. deserves a shout out. Totally. I mean, I think, and this is something else that I mentioned to Haley, is just you have to understand watching this movie after 15 years of just really bizarre, not typical Bond songs, some of which are really good, some mm-hmm. of which are miserable. It was so refreshing to have a Bond movie just go right back to the well of like smoky lounge singer talking about intrigue in, you know, ascending diminished minor keys, <laughs> like just just something really straightforward and damn sexy. Like that's the only word I can <laughs> draw up here. Yeah, and to kind of add on to that, I'm relatively certain those were the last uh opening credits that were designed by their go-to guy, uh, Maurice Binder, Hmm. who came up with this really like cool idea here where you basically see the collapse of the Soviet Union play out in the credits with statues coming down and buildings falling apart. So it's a really nice symbolic uh, presentation of what the movie is really all about, the Soviet Union collapsing and Bond sort of returning to the pieces and uh, confronting the remnants of that enemy uh, one last time. And I thought that was just a really cool uh, visual entry point for the movie. I'm glad you guys mentioned those because, like, I, I honestly don't – I just don't have as many points of comparison for that because I haven't seen all the movies uh, that you guys have in the series. And I and, – and, no, I mean I agree in the, in the moment. I like the song, but I just – again, I'm not, I'm not a big music critic to begin with, so I didn't have as much else to say. Uh, the one other thing I want to point out is I want to reiterate how much I really like that first M scene. Like that feels, it, it felt like it just, just where she's calling him out on like a bunch of shit. Like it was jarring, <laughs> but it was jarring, but in a really good way. It, it, it was very satisfying. And I mean, look, I, I'm charmed by James Bond as much as the next guy oftentimes, but uh, it was just like, I, th- I think that like with the first podcast that Fred and I did in this, in this quote unquote series, we were talking about uh, Goldfinger and just how like James Bond just like basically is like slapping a woman's ass and just be like, all right, run run along now you're, you're done with you and like the movie just like 
doesn't seem to actually find that objectionable. And this is, I mean, it's this is taking place. Being this, this movie is made thirty one years later or whatever, and but it's like okay, wow, this is actually kind of cool. I don't remember seeing this scene if I had seen this movie before, and it is kind of funny that it's kind of actually acknowledging some of his worst tendencies. How he honestly, it's probably highly inappropriate what he does uh, at the end of that uh, psychological evaluation, t- and when he seduces that woman who is like very clearly like at a much lower level than he is. It's not just like a fellow agent from another country, clearly a subordinate within the company, and like M is clearly aware of that too. And she calls him out on that. She calls him out on, like, so much other stuff he's done. It's like, wow, like, I knew Judy Dench is a good actor, Tris, and I never really found him ob- objectionable in any way. But, like, I really only knew her from the Craig movies more so than uh, than, than these because I hadn't seen Die Another Day in a while either at the time I watched this. And it was like, wow, this is really cool. This feels like a different dynamic. And the, the scenes are always fun and light when he's hanging around the MI6 headquarters, but they're more center- – it almost seems like they're more often than not. It's like a quick – He's going to get the mission, and he's going to hang out with Q, and that's just it. And he's going to uh, flirt a little bit with Money Penny, and it's very formulaic that part of all of these movies. And it's like, wow, this is something where they like actually took the time to uh, do something different and like actually flip up the status quo a little bit at MI6. And I just thought that was like very, very, very smart. Yeah, and by God, how prescient, right? That she, I think she literally says the line in that you know, in that scene where she's like, I have no compunctions about sending you to your death. And that comes back. What? 10 years later to 15 years later in Skyfall. Mm. Like that. Talk about <laughs> like, talk about, you know, prepping, prepping the timeline there. That <laughs> to me is just that, that was so ahead of its time. And again, uh, you know, uh, like you said, it's, we're used to M being just an exposition dump, right? Like in previous films, it's, he, he, he always goes to see M literally so he can just get the mission. Mm-hmm. The, so he can get the, the lowdown of who the players are, what the mission is, who he, the, the who, what, and where. And, and it's a really well-written scene because it's almost like Bond's not expecting it. <laughs> yeah. You know, he comes in and sits down. Smirking and... and <laughs> right. And she's like, you know, you want a drink? And he starts to, you know, cut, he's, he like kind of, he like mansplains the alcohol <laughs> in the office to him. And she's like, I don't drink that. And, and then he, she lets him kind of wear himself out talking about something. And then she's like, good, you done? Like, because <laughs> here's what I think of you. And it's just very, um, it's very well written and very, very different. Yeah, you could almost see like, I could almost have seen them like making a am a woman in the seventies, but just having it be like a whoever else Bond is talking to and who makes some kind of crack about M just being like the numbers overlord or some derisive name where M just gets to walk in and basically just like cut him off the knees and. Okay, that was very satisfying, but I, I could almost see a version where they decide, oh, we'll 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 be forward thinking and put a woman in this role, but then just like actually have that comment not go get called out or something like that. And it, it, I just thought it was really smart how they uh, how they handled all that stuff. But yeah, I, I think we'll go to Tomorrow Never Dies now. This is the the second film of the Pierce Brosnan era. It was a 1997 movie. It is directed by Roger Spottiswoodle and uh, written by Bruce Feirstein. It starts out with James also at a nuclear arms deal at the Russian border. Just, uh, it was almost deja vu watching that. But I, uh, but I, but then you see uh, he's, M kind of gets like cut off when she's trying to like, you know, deal with like the Royal, like Royal Navy people kind of getting in on this as well while James is on the scene. It's, it's a little bit of a cluster and uh, they kind of get out of there and they're, honestly, I don't even know how important that is to the rest of the movie now that I think about it. Uh, but I mean, 
it's dealing with like missiles and weapons and all that. That's just kind of like you know the opening scene of a bottom movie. The bigger part of this is that uh, there's a media baron named Elliot Carver, played by uh, Jonathan Price, who uh, has has a plan that he's going to facilitate throughout this movie to kind of set up a war between uh, China and England using like a secret uh, a secret ship that he has, and he's going to shoot down an an English ship and make them think China did it and shoot a missile back at China and start a war. But he's going to kind of be able to insert himself into it and get a lot of uh, good press for his press of covering it with his media companies but at the same time he's powerful enough that he'll be able to uh, buy off a Chinese general that's going to take over and just make him the most powerful person in the world. M sends Bond after him because Bond Bond's ex-girlfriend is a um, now married to Elliot Carver. She's played by Terry Hatcher. And uh, at the same time, China has their own agent that's in on the scene, played by Michelle Yeoh. And uh, Bond ends up teaming up with her. This was one I definitely hadn't seen before. And Elijah, I, I was just going to say, okay, let's talk Die Another Day and talk GoldenEye. They're kind of on opposite sides of this in the same way. But Elijah said, no, I actually think Tomorrow Never Dies might be actually worth discussing because uh, it has some thoughts on the media that might actually feel like fairly relevant in just uh, 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 in just the larger, you know, way we, you know, we weaponize information, the way we think about the news. And I'm sure I'm simplifying what Elijah's thoughts are, but that was kind of like the pitch he made to me. And I, and as I watched it, I was like, okay, yeah, this actually is a little interesting. And at the time, uh, maybe forward thinking in a way, maybe not the way that you said, like, uh, the world is not enough was really bad about it, Elijah. But at the same time, I think I wouldn't say this movie's good. But I definitely think it has a lot going on in a way that I that is actually kind of interesting to kind of unpack what they're trying to do in a way that uh, the world is not enough or was not good, and I just have no interest in anything it was trying to do there. Uh, what do you what do you find really interesting about this movie, Elijah? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you basically you, you know you kind of started at the the conversation is that you know, this is a movie that's about by and large a guy who I'm going to take it a step further. I mean, he's he's a media mogul. But he is very definitively portrayed as kind of like having this small man complex of being like nobody like he's mad at the world because nobody gives him his due. And he thinks he's so smart and he's, uh, you know, like he thinks that his money and his power should buy him that kind of enterprise in the world. And I, I think anybody can see where I'm going with this. Right? <laughs> like, this sounds oddly familiar without getting too crazy with it. I mean, I think it's it's very interesting to look at this movie, which came out 23 years ago, see kind of how little has changed in the way that the world perceives the news. The Tomorrow Never Dies is not only is it. Well, it's, it's literally a movie about fake news. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah, yeah, it's a movie about fake news. It's also a movie about how people don't really care what the the truth behind the news that they consume is. They just consume it, uh, which I think is a very interesting point. It very cleverly sideskirts the discussion of like, is can the media be trusted? Because this is not it's not a media problem. This movie is not an indictment of the media, quote unquote, the media doing anything bad. It's just an indictment of this one guy's personal, you know, insane mission. Um, but it is kind of an indictment of like people, you know, this notion that like people believe anything, um, and I think that that plays a, a big part in the movie. Whether it's you know more abstracted, like this idea, you know, in the in the scene that comes right after the beginning where uh, Carver has acquired this uh, device that allows him to misalign satellites, and he sends this British battleship off course, and 
everybody in the battleship is like so sure of their of like them being right and the chinese planes that are attacking them are so sure of themselves being right and that's kind of a theme throughout the movie right as the movie plays on it's this idea of you know like you you have a conviction that what you're doing is right and it's largely informed by what you think reality is what you think the truth is um as it should be but it shows that there's sometimes not a lot of questioning that goes into it. Or if there's not a lot of questioning, maybe it's that there is compromises made. I mean, I don't want to start digging like way too far into the film, yeah. but Bond eventually uh, picks up in an association with Wei Lin, who's a, a Chinese um, uh, security agent. And she... You know, they go at one point. They get captured by Carver's men, uh, and they end up in Saigon. And she sees a Chinese general who has like basically made some under the table deal with Carver. Even though he knows exactly what Carver is doing, he's made this compromise to accept a fake reality in order to achieve his goals. Which again. Don't want to sound like I'm hitting the bell too much here, but that that sounds awfully familiar. Yeah, this was supposed to be an escape from the last ten days of the in the world we've been living in, Elijah, and you're just uh, you're you're just not letting us do that. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, but you're you know facts don't care about your feelings. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that's to me just this this running current of you know how media influences the way that people think and this idea of, uh, of, of, a tr- of a truly megalomaniacal villain. I mean, Bond has had some quote-unquote megalomaniacal villains in the past, but usually they're kind of like the absurd mustache-twirling variety where it's like they have some real harebrained scheme that involves all these moving parts and things like that. Carver is a. I think he's a very fantastically simple villain. His he's, plan is a little bit convoluted. That, a little bit convoluted he's he's playing convoluted, and he's 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 playing it very big. And I when I think of like Jonathan Price, I don't think of like, I don't think of like over the top in that way. Which is so it's kind of cool to see. Right, of course, well, to see him against, and I think that lends credence to the idea of him as kind of having this little man complex. Right? I feel I feel like I'm probably missing some essential Jonathan Price. The three things I really know him from are like Glengarry Glenn Ross. And like Game of Thrones and the the, the two popes, uh, like I don't I haven't seen him in like a ton of other stuff. So like those things, Pirates, it's of, like, the, Pirates of the Caribbean is the one that comes to mind immediately. Okay, but, so maybe maybe I, you've never seen Brazil. I mean that's oh yeah, yeah. So that's a classic. Okay, so maybe I'm missing some of the essential, but like the stuff I've seen him from is like very understated. So I think I mean I don't know maybe just having that baggage with it may, maybe help. I don't want to say ground the villain, but like make it a little easier to accept. Cause I'm like, Oh wow. Like I, I know this guy is like something other than like something that's like this crazy and this out there. So it's the fact that it's like against type maybe makes it. So it's like, I can accept it a little more and it doesn't feel totally, totally, totally out there. I don't know. But uh, Fred, how do you feel about tomorrow never dies after kind of uh, revisiting it for, I'm guessing the first time in at least a little while. <laughs> so Elijah touched on a lot of the interesting points about uh, its themes in terms of the media already. Although I will say it's always fascinating to look back at these kinds of movies with the benefit of hindsight and just realize how almost prophetic some of them were. And I will say, obviously, Tomorrow Never Dies isn't Network. Network is one of my favorite movies from the 1970s, and it's much more subtle 
than Tomorrow Never Dies is about about how far certain uh, media companies will go in order to influence and dominate the news. And if you haven't seen that work, it's... Yeah, it was ahead of its time, whereas I think Tomorrow Never Dies is kind of of its time. I'm not entirely sure I would say that because, you know, when this came out in 1997, I think the first like major test for news networks came four years later with 9-11, where you really had that first big news event where every single TV station was on it all day long. And then the following day again and again, basically just covering the same topic um, and finding more and more angles to cover about it. And I think that's where Tomorrow Never Dies kind of, that's the direction it goes in where somebody like Carver, he keeps thinking about how do I keep people watching my network? How do I keep people engaged? And he obviously does it in a way that's almost satirical. And I think Jonathan Price plays the part so over the top that it's clear that it's meant to be satire. There's that really funny scene in Saigon where he's typing out bonds and uh, why oh is his hand already. <laughs> his hand yeah, when he's like typing like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and where he's saying like it's missing like that certain something, doesn't it? And then also like in the beginning where he talks to all of his contacts around the world and uh, he talks about blackmailing a prime minister to get something in exchange because he has incriminating information on him. And then he says, OK, and then when he does what we want him to do, release the information anyway, it'll get us more views. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I got a lot of laughs out of it. But at the same time, yeah, looking back at it 23 years later, you kind of realize now that we are... Uh, live in the era of Fox News. And it's pretty clear that Carver, in a lot of ways, is meant to be a sort of stand-in for Rupert Murdoch. I think you really have to look at that movie and say it's aged very well, because even though it might not be as elegant as Goldeneye in a lot of ways, uh, it really picked out some very strong themes that still resonate today, including its uh, understanding that the Chinese are going to play a major role on the world stage. I mentioned when we talked about GoldenEye that at the time it wasn't really clear yet who would move into that role uh, that the Russians used to have in terms of the big global adversary of the West, of the United States, of the United Kingdom. And even though the Chinese aren't really the villains here, you can already tell that pinning the United States, pinning the United Kingdom against China, that is sort of uh, the trend that we were seeing on the world stage in 1997 and in 2020, it's pretty clear that the movie was right on the money in terms of that. Yeah, I shouldn't have said it was necessarily of its time with respect to the media. It does get some credit for being like ahead of its time too. I think it, it's almost like at this point we're so in it and it feels like we're almost like, I, I don't know to say we're, we're past that because this is like an exaggerated version of like anything a media baron could actually ever accomplish. But I guess maybe in I, 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 maybe if I was a little closer to it, the scene and what I understood in 1997 to be, I would have kind of gathered like, oh, yeah, like this might have been 10 years ahead of its time. And now that I'm like 23 years past it, I wasn't necessarily thinking of like uh, where we at at that point versus where we even were five years later. Like maybe if I if I if I was like. 20 years old in 1997 and then 25 years old in 2002, I'd been like, whoa, that was really smart. Um, but, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely kind of agree with you and think it, it is maybe smart with respect to all that. It's just, I don't know, Elijah, I, I think 
I think it does a good job in like, you know, trying to corral and grapple with a lot of this stuff. But like I guess Gold, GoldenEye, I guess this felt, it felt tighter. It felt like it, it, it was a little more on a mission. Does it make sense if I still say that I feel like Tomorrow Never Dies in a, in a way is like still a little like maybe all over the place and ridiculous with its action in different ways that I think GoldenEye seems to avoid? It, it, does that make sense to you? Like, I don't know, I guess, I guess one, a couple of parts where it almost like lost me, where it's like, because again, like I, I, I guess I am impressed with a lot of the stuff we just talked about. But I, there, there were stretches of this movie where the action was was good, and there were other stretches where I was like, "All right, well, this is just getting like a little ridiculous." At one point, uh, it, it might have just been because like I was thinking about like the collateral damage that's done in some of the action scenes in this movie, which is something that's like I guess grappled with like an, you know in a lot of these like uh, more recent Avengers movies where like they actually really started deciding to like kind of talk about that kind of thing. And I, just, I know it's a weird thing to dwell on in a Bond movie, but maybe it's why I thought about it now, whereas maybe I hadn't watched too many other Bond movies before I watched most of the Marvel movies. But like that, that that's like a big part of like the latter Marvel movies is like dealing with a lot of the stuff that goes on. And there's a few sequences here where it's like I feel like they almost lose they, they lose a grip on the action. I think there's the the, the large outdoor uh, chase sequence where at one point, you know, they send a helicopter into like a Vietnamese tenement and shrugged off is no big deal. It's like, you know, there are people probably living in there. And then another point, Bond just like throws a car off the side of a building when he really didn't have to do that probably. And it goes like into a store. And I'm like, it just feels like these action scenes are all like 10 minutes too long. And it's almost taking me out of the movie at certain points and it's i whereas like i just i thought all the action in uh, even even though i did drive a tank through a city in uh goldeneye uh it, it the action felt a lot more contained i don't know elijah i i know you weren't necessarily taking the stance before we started doing this like oh no like tomorrow never dies is great i mean i guess i guess that's my long-winded way of asking you like is that something you kind of thought of as you watched the action or are, are the the negatives of this movie do they lie elsewhere for you Oh no! I mean, it's it's yeah. I would say largely it is. The, tomorrow's tomorrow never dies. Problem is that it's still kind of goofy. Like at the end of the day. And yeah, I didn't, I didn't know if goofy was the right adjective to describe that stuff, or if it was goofy or campy or just uh, loose. I don't know what the right word was, but like it feels like something's just like off with a lot of the action scenes. Whereas like the you know in the evil lair scenes are actually kind of fun. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's detached. Uh, maybe that's the word I'll use. And I and I would say that by and large, like, I hate to sound cold about this, but it Bond's like the entire section with Bond and Paris, with Terry Hatcher's character, you know, Elliot Carver's wife, Bond's former lover. That like entire section could be excised. Like, it has almost no bearing on the movie at all. The yeah, entire just, point needs of that. to go know to get into some room, and that's basically yeah. all it leads to. Yeah, and it, I mean, I can see that the idea is to illustrate like a uh, Bond is still kind of cold guy, like who's still, you know, kind of uh, you know willing to take it on the run, sort of. But for the amount of time that's dedicated to it, it's completely unnecessary. And I think what that ends up, you know, what that leads to is this circuitous twenty-five to thirty-minute part of the movie that's kind of like, well, that probably could have been done in like fifteen minutes. You know, we really could have wrapped that up quicker. And same, you know, by and large, I, I do really love the Saigon chase, um, you know, just because it's kind of it's really clever. And this idea of uh, him, uh, Bond and, and Michelle Yeoh's character, Wei, Wei Lin, being, uh, you know, handcuffed together and they have to kind of keep changing positions on the bike. It, I did like clever. that. Yeah, it's clever. But it again, it's just long and it, it, it eventually you get detached from it because it just kind of keeps going. So, yeah, may, maybe tighter editing all around could have made the film less 
detached, less campy. But I don't know. It's one of those things where, you know, I wasn't in the cutting room. I don't know what footage they had. <laughs> like, so it's hard, it's hard to say. I think they had too much. It's a problem, it sounds like. I mean, they you know, they, they, they had something else they could have put in there. But, like, it seems this movie could have – yeah, like you said, there's, like, a very efficient way to get James in that – in that room he needs to get to get that MacGuffin or whatever that device is. Like I, we haven't even really talked about like the mechanics of this whole movie revolves around like a few different devices and red boxes that honestly aren't even really like all that important necessarily. I guess they control the, they control some of the satellites. They control some of the, whatever. I don't know. It's not, it's, it's secondary to everything else we've already discussed, but it's, he needs to get into like this room to get this safe and like, literally probably more than a half an hour this movie is revolves just around that him getting out of uh paris with that with that is paris right or is He's it in hamburg, the, hamburg the, sorry the, the wife's name is paris oh god duh. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah i forgot fred how, how'd you feel about the germany of this all yeah i was actually going to make a larger point about that so first of all very happy it's set in hamburg that's where my grandparents live that's ah. a city i'm incredibly familiar with and uh like it's very clear that they actually did some shooting there because I was. Yeah, that, that, that would probably like really. If I was you, that probably like really pissed me off. They tried to like pass off just other European country X for like my like homeland. <laughs> like that yeah, could have gone yeah. really bad but for you, you specifically. But you can tell I definitely recognize some of those places, and I was pretty happy about that. And I would say in general, it's kind of strange that Germany was very rarely used as a location in Bond movies, especially considering that it was a major hot zone in the Cold War. Yeah, There really weren't a ton of Bond movies set there. The only exception I can really think of is Octopussy, and most of that was set in East Germany, actually. But West Germany was never really much of a factor, so I was kind of happy that they uh, decided to uh, shoot there for this one and give a little bit of publicity to uh, a very beautiful city, by the way, that... uh, once the coronavirus is over and people can travel safely again, uh, I would definitely recommend people uh, put near the top of uh, their list if they ever want to make a stop in Germany. Um, but to make a larger point, I guess my main, main issue with Tomorrow Never Dies is that as much as I just praised it for being sort of thematically ahead of its time, there was definitely some backsliding involved in terms of some of the uh, bigger staples, I guess, that you would always find in Bond movies. Uh, Elijah already mentioned uh, the scenes with Paris Carver, which was just kind of his usual way of sort of having fun with a woman and then kind of discarding her and uh, leaving her to her uh, fate, which turns out to be very bad in this particular case. Um, And I also didn't think he and Michelle Yeoh had a ton of chemistry, to be honest. I felt like their relationship was just kind of one of convenience where they were working together. Um, And I liked their interactions uh, in terms of them uh, being uh, like a professional team. And I thought it was kind of funny where at one point uh, Bond wants to type a message and then the keyboard is all Chinese characters and she has to do it. So small stuff like that I really enjoyed, but I just, I never really felt like they had that traditional uh, Bond, Bond girl chemistry where when they of course end up uh, being romantic with each other by the end, uh, where it felt particularly earned. I didn't really think they had, that sort of chemistry going for yeah, themselves. I'd agree. At least they waited till the very end, so I didn't really have to think about it for that long. They didn't like force it before that, which I mean isn't wholly unique. And I guess the same thing, thing kind of happens in uh, the world is not not enough with the Denise Richards character. Like they don't actually really get together to the end, and she's like acting too good for him the whole time, which is yeah. kind of what Michelle Yeoh does. Except she's at least a, a better actress than Denise Richards, and it's 
and obviously very well equipped to handle uh, a lot of the, the, the fighting stuff itself. Uh, though I would agree, it, it is like pretty evident. And then, I mean, it's not great in Die Another Day either. I mean, even if I think Halle Berry is great, and I guess we'll, in general, normally we'll, we'll talk about that. But yeah, I, I would kind of agree with that. Just like the, the three of us just three months ago also just talked about just like how well they even handled that in on, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Because like the mm-hmm. um, Diana Rigg character is like actually like uh, really great in that. Also rest in peace, by the way. Oh, did she die after we recorded that one too? Yeah. Jeez, this has been like a, a rough. Yeah, you're right. It's been a man. That was a rough few months. These people have just started dying since we started doing these podcasts. It's awful. But yeah, I mean, rest in peace. She's great, and she is great in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. So it's like, uh, you know, it's weird. It's like they during this stretch here, or it's like you would have thought they would have hopefully, uh, you know. I don't know, figured it out a little more with the female characters. It's not great, though. I, I would agree. I made that point about, you know, just the Saigon scene not being great, but then Elijah kind of corrected me in that it, it actually is really fun. You know, that motorcycle scene is such that, like, I'm sure they have stunt people involved, uh, obviously. Like, they're not, like, riding the motorcycles themselves, like, you know, <laughs> with one person sitting facing the other like that. But, I mean, it's, it's still... They have to be involved in the choreography of it somewhat, and I think... Uh, Michelle Yeoh does a pretty good job and I enjoyed I kind of enjoyed their back and forth and their maybe their uh, their chemistry to a certain extent with respect to like you know actually having to take out bad guys it maybe not so much as far as like them necessarily being someone you're rooting for romantically yeah I was gonna say I kind of in some ways I wish it kind of kept it that way I know that that would have been incredibly atypical for a Bond movie Um, but I do think their strongest moments were you know when they are cooperating in a martial in a, in a you know mm-hmm. a technical perspective um and i i love michelle yo i think she's a phenomenal actress i also think that it's, it's fair to admit to say that she does not have or in 1997 did not have the strongest english language presence and i think what that leads to is scenes like when they're on the boat together and that's supposed to be i think a romantic moment air quotes i think it just comes across as like really the line reading is really stiff from her. There were a couple of moments where I was wondering if it was dubbed. Like I, I don't know. I think I think it might have been. I think she may have done. AD, I, I I imagine it's still her voice, but it may have been ADR. She may have ADR her own. You know, done her own lines over again. I wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't um, going to bring that up till you said it. But there were a few moments where it's like she. I think they get away with it because like she's not looking at the camera, but you hear her talking, and it was like I it, it, I don't know. It struck me oddly. I, that's all I'll say. Yeah, I like I said, I do really think she she's an excellent uh, actress. I also am fine saying that I think her performances in, in Mandarin and Cantonese are more impressive, uh, and just largely, especially early on in her career, largely because you know we get scenes like that one on the boat where she's talking about you know getting to enjoy the presence of a decadent Western agent, (laughs) but it's just like, it's so stiff. It's so, and it's clear that Brosnan doesn't like the energy levels don't match because Brosnan's (laughs) Brosnan's going full Pierce Bronham on her going like, you know, yeah, I'd love to spend some time with a Chinese agent. Like, and it's just like, Oh God, (laughs) the energy levels do not match. And I don't, I don't blame I don't blame really either one of them. I, like I said, I kind of just wish they didn't do that at all. I was, kind of wish. That was this her first? Was it, was it her first English language movie, or has she done a few others? I, no, I believe that was her first English language film. Okay, um, we'll give her a break then. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not. Again, I'm not saying this is. I'm certainly not her fault. Like I don't. I, yeah, I don't think there's anything 
you know, wrong with her. I just think that it, it should have been a consideration. Like, you know, if we're not going to get this kind of chemistry, clearly she's got the technical prowess. She's got the martial prowess. Like, yeah, it would have felt distinct and yeah, interesting and different to like have bond, like maybe just see a woman as like a professional equal in a way and just have it only be that that would have like, you know, felt really unique and really noteworthy for a Bond movie, I'd say, and not to have him just have to necess- necessarily end up with the girl at the end just because it's a Bond movie. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, it just, uh, you know, it somewhat falls flat because he does end up just having to save her as a damsel in distress. You know, she gets tied up and blah, blah, blah. And I will say, quick detour. Yeah. As much as some of the side villains in this film are completely useless, they are phenomenal Vincent Chevelli's character, uh, Doctor Kaufman. Doctor Kaufman. Yeah. Doctor Kaufman is that. That is an iconic Bond moment. That entire scene of him, like with the stiff fake German accent, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that whole scene is just so. It's so beyond the pale ridiculous that it comes. It loops back around. I would agree. I, I like that scene. The same goes for Gotz Otto's. Um, Godzilla's character, yeah, Stamper, which is just, again, just a total caricature of, like... <laughs> the traditional German blonde henchman, which the Bond yeah. franchise was uh, definitely very good at recycling over and over again, yeah. Yeah, just the weird, the weird, like, vaguely sexual energy between, like, him and Dr. Kaufman and him and Bond and... It's good. It's this is what I mean when I'm talking about the movie being campy, and it's why I don't, I can't like hate it for it being campy because it's just so enjoyable. It's like it's not good, but it's fun. No, like, I'm really glad you mentioned the Doctor Coffin moment because I, 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 I was gonna forget to before I moved on, but like that, I don't know that that it it, it was cool to, to like because like you're right, some of it's like maybe campy in like a not good way, but that's like something that just was like. It was just like so well done and so distinct and so specific, just the jokes it was going for that I, I was like, oh, wow, this is like actually uh, this this feels like it could easily just be in another comedy. It's not funny. It's not funny by James Bond standards. It's just, just funny, funny, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, guys, we're going to be here till like midnight if we don't talk about Die Another Day now. So I'll go ahead and move on to that. Uh, Die Another Day was the last of the Pierce Brosnan James Bond movies. It came out in uh, 2002. It was uh, written by Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who basically have been involved in everything since Tomorrow Never Dies. Apparently, I learned, I learned that. Or maybe since The World Is Not Enough. They, they came in on one of those two. And uh, directed by Lee Tamahori. It, uh, you know, in this one, uh, James is in... Uh, the, the, the opening scene actually is more clearly tied to the rest of the movie, unlike uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, which I stumbled through having to explain that. But uh, James is hanging out at a North Korean military base at the beginning of this movie because he has to bust up some, you know... Uh, some blood diamond th- business going on. I don't really. Uh, the, the why is not as important as the what it leads to. Where uh, he is uh, dealing with a North Korean general named uh, Zhao, uh, and then a, or, or, and a colonel named uh, Tan Sun Moon, and they're kind of Ill- illegally trading these weapons for these other conflict diamonds. And Bond kind of you know breaks it up and kind of escapes. It seems like Moon dies, and Bond gets taken into custody and is traded like um, a year a year a year or 14 months later for Zhao who has been captured at another job and normally they would just leave an MI6 agent to die like this but M is afraid that like Bond has been hemorrhaging information cuz it seems like a lot of uh, a, lot, a lot of uh, trade secrets are getting out and they'd want him to stop hemorrhaging information while he gets tortured 
Bond knows that he actually hasn't cracked, and there's probably some other leak in MI6. So when they kind of send him off the grid to be rehabilitated, he escapes and uh, is doing his own thing for a lot of this movie, trying to uh, trying to track down the people who uh, might be setting him up to kind of look like the the sieve. As we mentioned earlier, like apparently more so than I realized, like apparently this movie is just like the worst, according to a lot of people. Uh, I think Fred and I might be a little higher on it than Elijah. So I'm, I'm, I, I, I know I started with Elijah on the last one, Fred, but I'm going to have to def- go, go to him again here. Uh, Elijah, why is this movie like so roundly looked down upon and seen as like arguably one of the worst in the entire series? So I, generally speaking, the critical consensus is that uh, Lee Tomahori's direction is way overindulgent for James Bond. There's the general assessment is that this is that, that Lee Tomahori has single-handedly made James Bond unsuave by basically turning, <laughs> him into, turning him into an advertisement. And, and that kind of links into another complaint about excessive product placement, which eh, it's, you know, that, that's neither here nor there. I, I would say the one place where the critics and I kind of agree on it is that by and large, what this film introduced was incredible amounts of CGI Basically, any time that they could insert a CGI shot into this movie, they did. Some of them are decently effective. Uh, however, I'm sure we'll get to this in, in the course of discussing the film. The climax of the film has some of the worst CGI I've ever seen. <laughs> and it's not a, you know, it's a it's an issue with being poorly done, you know, being sloppily done, but also just kind of trying more than they probably should have. And I think that's the real knock against this movie is like, it didn't need any of these things. Like if, if any of these aspects had just been rolled back, I think it really, the, ne- I think it really needed the ice palace. I mean, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> the ice palace is fine. It's what everything that follows the ice. Palace. Right, right, right. <laughs> Fallout of the Ice Palace, uh, if you will, and, and you know, and then that's not even getting into. There's there's some uh, a little weird racial dynamic with the villain, you know that uh, we, that that has not aged particularly well. Uh, you know, I I think there were some some Buddhists that complained about a scene that. It's just it's a lot of the complaint. I think is just it's sloppy. Like a lot of the movie was sloppy. It could have been done better. Uh, I, well, I kind of agree with you about everything like post Ice Palace. I'm like, what is going on here? Like, you know, it feels like uh, 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 my, my, my kind of thought as I was watching this was just like, you know, a lot of times a movie would like tighten up once it like gets to like a very dis- specific setting like that. You know, sometimes movies can be a little too sprawling and too all over the place, but then like everything converges in one place as it kind of does in like a setting that is, yeah, I was making a joke about it, but like in theory, that Ice Palace is like a pretty cool, unique thing to look at. And you would think, oh, okay, now they got all the pieces on the board. Everything's going to come together. And this movie oddly feels like it kind of falls apart at that point. It's very bizarre in how it, it doesn't lock in where you would typically think an action movie might once you have it build to something like that. And then all of a sudden I was like, I'm watching it. I'm like, man, I, 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 I thought like, this was going to like all tie together nicely and it's just not, but I do like a lot of what comes before that. I think Fred might be more with me on that. I kind of enjoy this movie for a decent stretch up until that point. I thought, and I found like a lot to like, 
even if I can acknowledge other parts of it that aren't as good, and I'll get into that, but I, I want to start with that because I think Fred might be more in agreement with this because I saw like the beginning of your letterbox review. I didn't read the whole thing because I hadn't watched the movie yet, and I forgot to go back and read it, but I think you're kind of with me on the first part of this movie actually still being kind of enjoyable while maybe being able to recognize its faults, Fred. Oh, I would say kind of enjoyable is actually an understatement. I think the first half of the movie is actually terrific, and, oh, I, and I flat okay. out mean that. I, I, I agree that the Tamari's direction uh, is less than ideal. But I would say that there is a lot to be said for some of the things that Die Another Day tries that are pretty novel. I mean, the best example being that Bond really fucks up in the opening scene. And the result is that he ends up being imprisoned in North Korea for well over a year. I mean, that's a pretty like drastic uh, outcome for one of his missions, which... Uh, for someone like Bond who always just kind of seems to wiggle his way out of uh, every dangerous situation he ever encounters, uh, that is a pretty colossal failure on his part. And the fact that he's under suspicion that he was leaking information um, under torture and M flat out says, I wish you had taken your cyanide and died instead, <laughs> which, I mean, that is... Uh, I mean, everything considered, that is a, a pretty bad place for him to be in, considering he has practically uh, been carrying the entire organization on his back for the past 40 years. I mean, MI6 owes him a lot. And on top of that, uh, then goes rogue right after. Exactly. Which, which, again, I think that's a pretty uh, effective direction for the movie to go. And I also really enjoy that scene where he walks into the Hong Kong Yacht Club uh, wearing his PJs and he still has his beard and his scraggly hair. And considering Bond is usually the kind of guy who likes to make an entrance at fine establishments and normally he's ultra polished, he wears a nice suit and he blends in with the fancy crowd. The fact that he is forced to walk into a fine establishment like that, looking like that, that's, funny, yeah. that's a low point for him. And I thought that that was pretty amusing and that even though he had this look of someone who clearly didn't belong there, the manager immediately tells the receptionist he gets the nicest room, make sure he gets nice clothes up there. Uh, this is a guest we want here. So I thought that there were a lot of like really nice, fun moments at the onset, and I also enjoy what goes on in Cuba, um, which, again, it's a very effective setting for a Bond movie. So... I think the movie really sets itself up very nicely uh, up until he meets uh, Gustav Grace for the first time. And then, yeah, I think the silliness kind of overtakes Wait, everything I, else. I, I think you're actually cutting, selling the movie short, or I don't want to say selling the movie short because I think you even like the first half better than I do, but I think you're cut, placing that cutoff point a little too early. That sword fight is fun. No, that sword fight yeah. is terrible. What? <laughs> it is no. life. Far one of the worst choreographed fight scenes I've really? ever Really? I had fun watching it. I have a thing for sword fights. You okay. know that. And that scene is that scene is an absolute mess. It is it is just some of the most ridiculous combat choreograph like choreographing <laughs> I've ever seen. Okay. And you were complaining about the collateral damage. Uh, in Tomorrow Never Dies. <laughs> I mean, well, they fuck up. They, they, they didn't they, accidentally. They fuck up that building. But, well, they fuck up that building, but they don't like send cars into like occupied buildings. It's not as bad. But there are people all around. And yeah, I mean, there's they, they, oh, one, yeah, they, one point where they kind of destroy this guy's newspaper. I mean, they could have very easily cut his head off as well. Yeah, I don't. So, maybe they weren't actually trying to like consciously avoid the collateral damage. They just happened to. So maybe I'm giving a little too much credit, but. 
They, yeah, it's funny how I, maybe I didn't leave it thinking like, oh, that's like so technically well shot and choreographed and all that. But I just kind of, I, I kind of appreciated how ridiculous it was and how it went off the rails and it was fun. Like this Gustav Graves guy's, I mean, he's not obviously not Gustav Graves for real, but like that's not a real person necessarily. But like Moon has very carefully curated this guy over the course of a year and like everything we know from him up to that point, which isn't a ton yet. He, he's only come on the, he's only become a character in the 10 minutes before that. But like it's like oh wow this guy, he's he's clearly like a very put together public figure and he just like loses his shit all over the place because you just don't actually know who he is at that point in the movie if you haven't seen the movie before and it's like oh wow like this guy is just like clearly off his off his rocker and obviously it's like actually kind of informed by the fact that like he has an axe to grind with Bond but at the same time like I almost forgot about that for a moment as I was watching it and I was like oh wow like he just like really 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 couldn't control himself and i i, I actually kind of laughed at it almost as much as i was like in suspense because i knew they weren't going to die and you know i will say i really do like toby stevens as an actor uh i mean he kind of disappeared uh from the stage for a while after die another day but since then he's been in two major tv shows that i really like uh one of them being lost in space <laughs> uh the other one being black sails which i'm currently watching and i think is actually a very enjoyable show about pirates uh, which aired on Stars for four seasons that I highly recommend. Also, an interesting side note, and I didn't know this for a while. His mom is Maggie Smith, which really, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, yeah, I didn't know for the longest time. And then uh, ju- only when I started seeing him on those uh, TV shows, I uh, did a bit more research into uh, what he had been up to since Star Another Day, and that's when I found out that uh, he's a uh, part of a very. Uh, high-caliber acting family, um, Maggie Smith being the best example. Uh, But yeah, I I think he really kind of goes over the top in a fun way, and I think he's pretty enjoyable as this totally demented villain. But again, it's in service of just some really cringy moments, and the fact that he is not actually Gustav Graves, as Elijah already mentioned, that there are just some very unfortunate underpinnings there that are impossible to ignore uh, in the very long, very problematic uh, history of the Bond franchise when it comes to racism. Especially, unfortunately, especially racism against Asians. Yeah. You Only Live Twice is probably one of the worst movies I've seen in that regard. And that was, it's the same franchise. So it's it's unfortunate, but... uh, yeah, it's kind of the re- it's kind of the reverse. You only live twice, right? Because in you only live twice, you have Sean Connery, the white Western guy, being turned into a Japanese man, and here it's the exact opposite. So uh, the Bond franchise has come full circle. Yeah, it's funny. Like, you, um, I, I mean, I, I I I can't disagree with any of that. But the other thing you you kind of mentioned a lot of that stuff being in service of cringy moments. I cringed almost every time Halle Berry talked in the movie. You know, and I've probably seen this almost more than any other Bond movie because it, it, this is definitely the first Bond movie I ever saw in theaters. So maybe as I was younger, I was just more apt to like catch it on cable and stuff and watch. And I, as I before I started it, I was like, oh well, you know, this is this is almost like a, almost like a reaction to like just how ridiculous it might have been to have like Denise Richards playing a nuclear scientist in the last one. We're gonna get like an actress of like Halle Berry's character like playing someone that can kick ass and I do think she handles the action all very well in the movie, but it was just like I just think the part is like so poorly written and the to to the point where she can't even do a whole lot to elevate it. And it was just like kind of disappointing because I mean I I don't know. Like I maybe there might have been some other um um black 
Bond girls at some point, like since the the Rosie character and uh, Live or Let Die, like we were talking about. I, I, I just I wouldn't have been around for those. I just haven't watched any of those. But it was like a, a chance for them to like kind of get it right with an actress that had I think just won her Oscar. I think at that point and. I did, they didn't write a good part for her. And it was like kind of disappointing where it's like, you know, like I, the movies probably hadn't been, a, I don't want to say hadn't been diverse. Like we just talked about Michelle Yeoh, but like had maybe hadn't had a lot of African-American people cast in prominent roles or just, or people of, or black people, not even just African-Americans cast in prominent roles. And, uh, didn't really like, I don't know, didn't really make the most of it. And I thought, uh, I, I liked looking at the Cuba stuff, you know, that's one part of the movie where there's maybe not too much CGI and it's just a, a more of a shootout scene and running through that building, which is, it's fine, whatever. And I, I get, they didn't actually film in Cuba. I think they somehow impressively turned uh, Pinewood Studios into Cuba, which, I mean, I thought they did a pretty good job of it. Not that I've ever been to Cuba myself, but I, I don't know. I was just like every, it, it was like very uncomfortable. Like every time she talked, like I, I, I found the, I found the, um, Miranda Frost character even more interesting for whatever it's worth, even with the the, the quote unquote twist with her or whatever. And not the most original special thing in the world, but like I, I, I don't know. I just found that I I I I just kind of bought that character a little more, even if it was a little ridiculous that she falls into bed with James after saying she's not going to in like five minutes because because of course. But like I I don't know. It, for whatever reason, I was just like, I thought they almost did better by that character somehow than they did by Halle Berry. And that really bothered me almost more than anything else rewatching this movie, even if I can, I can certainly agree as to like all the issues the last 30 minutes of this movie has. By and large, my biggest problem with it is that, you know, I, I'm fine with the, with, the, with the goofiness of it, with the campiness of it, but it's just, it comes down to a question of what is this movie about? And, like ultimately, it's not really about anything. Like I, I think that it's had it's North, had North Koreans even been like, you know, it almost feels like a missed opportunity there, right? Like had North Koreans even been prominently featured in many mainstream movies at that point? Not really. No, no. I mean, it hadn't. But it's the movie completely sidesteps that question, right? Like it's it, it, it's not it's not his plan. It's not Graves slash Colonel Moon's plan to start a war. It's like the war would be a side effect of it. And the, the, I think his, his father, General Moon, is even like portrayed as being like, oh, no, we can't have that. <laughs> like the movie's just not it's, a, it's not really about anything. Even the world is not enough, which is a bad movie, is at least like there's an overarching idea of like, uh, you know, oil monopolies and, and you know, kind of the the flow of energy in the world. And that's. You know whether or not it succeeds at that, we can have a conversation about that. But this no, movie just we're not, not having a conversation about that. We've not, already been talking for too long. <laughs> the, the, the point is, like this movie, just it's not about anything. Like there's conflict diamonds, there's North Korea, there's gene therapy, there, and it's just kind of there's solar weapons. It's it, it it reminds me in a lot of ways of like the worst of the Roger Moore era, where it was just kind of throwing everything at the wall and seeing what would stick. And in a lot of cases, it's the answer is nothing. <laughs> nothing sticks. Yeah, I would say I somewhat disagree with that to a point only, though. And that's why I think the first half of the movie works so well with me, because I think the most interesting thread here is Bond trying to rehabilitate himself because he really is under suspicion for a while that he might have cracked and jeopardize national security uh, by not taking the cyanide. But he gets to that point pretty quickly, right? Like halfway through the movie, he has that scene with M, where it's pretty clear that 
he wasn't the one who leaked the information. And at that point, he's back in her good graces. And I think at that point, the movie really loses something essential, which is uh, that strong overarching uh, premise that really sort of set it apart uh, for the first hour or so. And that's where I kind of lost interest. And I think aside from the big CGI action scenes that are so over the top that it drags down the entire movie, I think the fact that that was wrapped up so early on uh, takes away some of the most interesting stuff in this movie. Yeah, that's a good point because, I mean, I don't think all these movies need to necessarily, like, and I'm not saying that's what you're saying they need to do, Elijah, because it could, but I'm just saying it could be about something smaller. It doesn't have to be necessarily have like a, a massive uh, geopolitical message slash story or any of that. It can, it can be a little more personal, and get, which is what I think Honor Majesty's Secret Service largely, largely was or something like that, or, or maybe even License to Kill in certain ways. Like when these movies can be more personal, some, some of these movies can be more personal for Bond than others. And, and I think that's, uh, that's why it's a good point that Fred made. It's like uh, the movie maybe there's a version of this movie which probably does that more effectively on the whole than this one does. And instead it probably just loses that thread, but doesn't find a new one. Right. Yeah. I mean, I could go even further and really say, I mean, like Skyfall is like the quintessential yeah. pocket bond film where, right. It's, it's not about all these world ending scenarios. I mean, there is a whole conversation to be had about, you know, the, the, the importance and impact and place of espionage, but the, the real focus of Skyfall is like, you know, M's relationship with her counterparts and, or with her, with her subordinates and, you know, specifically bond and, and Silva and their relationship and the way that M treats them. That's that movie. And I, I agree. I mean, I think this is, I mean, there it's frustrating to me because you're right. There is an idea in this movie of bond as like this. I think a lot of people knew this was going to be Pierce Brosnan's last bond film. I think, Pierce Brosnan, to an extent, knew it was going to be his last Bond film. And I think part of this movie was kind of... It, it's building to this notion of, like, oh, Bond still got it. You know, Bond, he's still got the juice. Like, he can still do it. And that's, like... And there, there would have been so many opportunities and avenues to pursue that and to build that point. And then, like Fred said, it just kind of... They wrap it up, and it never goes anywhere. And... Instead of instead of wrapping it up and having fifteen or twenty minute you know minutes left of the movie to kind of finish up the action and get a denouement, we have forty five minutes left of the movie. <laughs> so you didn't want to be... see like massive lasers chasing an invisible car going down a glacier? It didn't do it for you. Uh, not when it looked like the way it did. <laughs> uh, well, do, do you have strong thoughts? Because I, I, I think I, I went back earlier. I think it was Roger Ebert that might have pointed this out. Did you have strong thoughts on how? The, the room that Halle Berry is trapped in can flood, but the actual structure around it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, again, that's why I would, I, 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 I get frustrated because it's not, a lot of this movie does not seem like an overreach where it's like they just tried to do too much. It's like they just, they were just sloppy. Like they didn't, a lot of these things feel very half thought through. Is there a version uh, of the, uh, is there a version of the DNA therapy that can be as like, Oh, cutting edge and without being as racist. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like the idea, like we're not even, we're, we're just going to like skip right over the mission impossible mask and just like change people. I feel like there might be something there, but I can understand why people didn't think it was in good taste. You know? Well, cause I, think- I, 
yeah, I think it's, it's, I mean, it's like gene therapy. They went, they went even far past like plastic surgery to just make him look, they were like, no, we were going to change him body and soul into a white man, <laughs> which is just like, there's so, there's so much wrong. With <laughs> yeah. The impl- I, I just don't think they really thought, thought through the entire implications of what they were doing. They were really just setting up a major twist where Bond at some point realizes that this Gustav Graves guy is actually someone he thought was dead and the same guy uh, who essentially uh, ensured he was trapped in North Korea, Korea for over a year. And I think they were so focused on setting up that twist and paying it off that they, it didn't really occur to them what it is they were actually saying underneath it all. And I, 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 I don't think you would get away with that nowadays. I think in 2020, they would have serious issues making this kind of movie the way they did back in 2002. But yeah, yeah, I, I, I just think like you, there, there's no real excuse for that, except that when they put together that script, it just they flat out like underestimated like what it is they were actually saying. And it's a message that wasn't appropriate back then and it's aged even worse over the past uh, 18 years since the movie came out elijah did you have any other like points you wanted to make on uh die another day i feel like we like pretty well covered it like i think i don't know it, i guess it it has it, i i don't even know if i actually i don't even know if i really articulated like what i liked about the movie i guess i just found it like even if i didn't even find that opening sequence that um like the the massive hovercrafts like wasn't exactly like the most dynamic thing either i guess i just did kind of enjoy the chase and like bond being on his own even if i didn't especially find like the the stuff with jinx in cuba great i just i guess like fred i just enjoyed seeing him like kind of do his own thing up until a certain point of the movie and found that really compelling and that's about all i really have to like say that's like super good for it it's just like i don't know i guess i i, I was entertained until i wasn't um elijah do you have any other final thoughts no, I, I think mostly hit it all. I I feel like the thing with Bond is that Bond has a much lower floor than it has a higher ceiling, um, perhaps <laughs> more so than some people might think. And I think the, the conversation of which Bond is the worst is probably it's probably a more difficult conversation than which Bond is the best. They're kind of like batting at baseball batting averages. Some of these eras, you know, it's like actually, you know, like if you get if you get hit 300, you're doing really well. If you, if you hit three out of 10 or every, three out of every 10 are good, then I guess you're actually doing OK. Not that like anyone's made 10 movies, but it's not as high of a batting average as you might think, even if like there's a lot of these movies that we enjoy. Right. And so, you know, when we compare it to a movie like The World is Not Enough, you know, there is more to talk about with this movie, probably just because of the audacity of it in some cases and how strange it is in some cases. And, you know, it generates more conversation than the world is not enough. So even if the world is not enough might be like slightly better put together, it's just not as compelling to talk about. And I think that's what people need to recognize. Like the takeaway for bond, right. Is like the best bonds are the movies that leave you with, with something to say. And so, you know, if if that's something to say is, well, this movie sucked in a lot of ways, <laughs> like, then maybe it's maybe it, it actually rises above the crop in, in, in some regards. And so, you know, I think people were let down by Die Another Day. I think people were expecting a more 
like just a, a more meaningful kind of blowout for the last. It was not only was it the last Bond film for the for the Brosnan era. It was the 40th anniversary of the franchise, and it I think it just it kind of shit the bed on those aspects. But it, that's that is that's auxiliary to what the movie is, and I don't know that you can necessarily judge it like that all the time. You have to at some point look at it as just some of its parts, what it is, what you see on screen. And like, again, we've sat here and talked about it for, you know, what, 30 minutes. Like it's, it, it, there's something to it. If that's what we get out of it. Yeah. I think that's a pretty good way to uh, wrap it up. What I'll say before we finish with the bond stuff, well, golden eyes on Netflix. So I can tell you that's definitely worth watching. And, uh, tomorrow never dies is on Amazon prime. And, uh, that's about all you really need to know for, for, what, for, the, for what we discussed. I think we recommend going to watch those. Uh, Fred, before we sign off, do you have any other recommendations you want to make on stuff you've been watching recently? Uh, uh, yeah, I've been kind of going through Sean Connery's filmography recently, simply because, of course, now that he's passed away, um, I was kind of interested in what else he has done outside of uh, the Bond movies and, of course, his uh, hilarious performance in Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. I will say the one that's probably uh, easiest uh, to access at this point because it's uh, on Amazon Prime is The Hunt for Red October. Which, I've actually uh, never seen that. Uh, yeah, it's uh, they just put it on Prime uh, at the beginning of this month, actually. So, uh, yeah, just in time. Um, I mean, obviously, it's one of his many uh, performances playing a character that doesn't really uh, lend himself to a Scottish accent. But at the same time, it is the first adaptation of uh, a book in uh, Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan universe, which nowadays is a TV show on Prime with John Krasinski. And a lot of very uh, big names have played the part, including Harrison Ford and Ben Affleck. In this one, uh, Jack Ryan is played by Alec Baldwin. So uh, it's definitely a very, uh, very unique performance that Connery gives. And it's... Uh, it kind of fits in nicely with what we talked about uh, with Goldeneye, about sort of the final remnants of the Soviet Union kind of being getting a cinematic treatment in Hollywood. So I would definitely recommend that one, especially if you want to see something uh, in Connery's filmography uh, that's a little bit more unique. Gotcha. Elijah, do you have anything you've been watching you want to plug or any Turner stuff you want to direct people to? Yeah, I mean, I, I will get to that. I will say that as far as like Connery goes, yeah. Uh, I would say, and if, I mean, especially if we're if we are kind of looking at this through a lens of like uh, you know comparatives, I think the man who would be king is uh, from 1975, with uh, directed by John Huston, with Sean Connery and Michael. I know it's available to rent in a couple of places. It's a movie about um, a couple of couple of old British fellows who decide to set off into British India and declare themselves king. Hmm. And I think it's it's a it's a adventure dark comedy um, to some extent, and uh, I think it would it would kind of make an interesting pairing, right, with uh, with these late Bond movies from the Brosnan era. This idea of kind of this this sort of past this post imperial era of Bond, and this idea of kind of like the fading glory of the British empire and, and the way that that relates to what Bond's job is. And I think the man who would be King is a, is be a good, a good wine pairing with that, if you will. Oh, good. Um, good. Yeah. Uh, one other thing that, uh, I think Josh Brown mentioned it earlier when he was uh, this summer, uh, when he was on the podcast, he directed me to the Anderson tapes, just Sydney Lumet movie from 1971, which was, I mean, a, f- a fun heist movie, which, uh, just, 
Connery just kind of playing like a regular like American thief was uh was pretty interesting in its own right just felt a little different because we're like you know used to just seeing him play like a, a british spy it was like oh cool like he's just seeing you in a different mode uh so that's another connery i would direct people to uh one other interesting thing i, I watched last week which is just timely i want to th- shout it out while it's still fresh in my head on election night i watched stanley kubrick's the killing for the first time uh and it kept my attention uh which i mean like i I was trying I, – I tried to, like, on election night, I tried to, like, make it so I didn't, like – from, like, 6 o'clock to, like, 9 o'clock, I didn't take anything in. I wanted to, like, minimize the time I was stressing by looking at election results. I was like, all right, I'm going to go on the bike at the gym, try and find a movie. I saw it was on Prime. It was, like, really good, just, like, really impressive. Like, I – you know, so many of other Stanley Kubrick's movies are just, like, in good ways. Like, they're long. They're two-and-a-half to three-hour, like, epics, and it was kind of cool to see him be like, oh, no, I can do, like, a the most stripped-down heist movie you've ever seen that's only – not that's, like, 84 minutes long and is really compelling and suspenseful and all that, and it, if someone just wants to – feels like watching a really cool heist movie from another time, like, I highly recommend checking that out. Before we get off of here, uh, Fred, anything you want to plug? I You recently got back on Twitter, which I'm very excited about, so if you want to <laughs> sh- sh- shout out your Twitter as well as your letterbox to people. Uh, yeah, sure. So my letterbox, as always, please do follow me. Uh, that's Fred Kolb, F-R-E-D-K-O-L-B. And yeah, I decided to sort of get back on Twitter a little bit. Um, I don't just talk about movies on there. I also share my political views on there and I talk about sports. So if you are <laughs> interested in that, feel free to give me a follow. Uh, my Twitter handle is Fred the German. Um, all one word. Gotcha. Elijah, any, any Turner stuff you want to plug while you're here? Yeah. Um, HBO Max new series coming out on Thanksgiving on November 26th is uh, The Flight Attendant, um, starring Kaylee Cuoco. Uh, it is created by Greg Berlanti, um, and it is a uh, a mystery, a mystery thriller actually. So uh, relevant here um, about a, a flight attendant who gets a little too a little too drunk on a layover and uh, wakes up next to a corpse and has to piece together what happened and uh well all while being chased across uh, across the world by the fbi and uh, another assorted uh clandestine forces so that is uh coming out uh on thanksgiving interesting uh, something to look forward to to watch with your uh family uh i'm uh <laughs> as usual i'm josh boy j-o-s-h-j-u-r-n-o-v-o-y on twitter and letterbox and uh podcast twitter is at rewind movie pod podcast email is rewind movie pod at gmail.com send us any feedback there uh coming up next on the podcast i i don't know i might i might be uh finishing my pixar rewatch with uh joe our animation correspondent and watching all of the cars movies uh because uh, we're because i i if, if there's ever a time to do that while i'm still doing these old movies uh or these these old podcasts it's right before we might in theory start getting more awards movies so i'm gonna knock that out and then we'll like actually hit whatever of award season we're actually gonna have so uh th- thanks to fred and elijah for joining me and thanks to all of you who stuck with us through this podcast because i know it was a long one but i we, we had good reason to revisit all these bond movies and we will be back with the daniel craig episode at some point before april because i misspoke earlier i forgot that like they only pushed no time to die back to april not like next fall because so much stuff got pushed back right around the time they pushed that back again that like i just kind of lost track of it so at some point in the next like four or five months we'll we'll do that as well to kind of finish this out so everyone stay tuned for that thanks for listening and we'll see you next time